Morning, God's people. It is a humbling thing to get up and say anything in front of God's people. So I praise him today for that privilege. And I hope that you are grateful to the Lord that you're with his people today. And that as you look to your left and as you look to your right, that you are cognizant of the fact that these are the children of God, that you yourself are a child of the living God. It's always humbling to, to, to know that, that we are this as we come to worship. We, didn't, we did not come here to do, we came here to be. We came here to be who we are. And today is Palm Sunday, and there is really no better place to be on Palm Sunday than in the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason I say this is because as you get to the passage of Scripture in Matthew, and all of them, but in Matthew in particular, as we're in Matthew, in chapter 21 of the Gospel of Matthew, the first thing that he says is that these things took place, what he's about to describe with Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey that he's there celebrated as the king, Hosanna, save us now, son of David, the Christ, the king, and they throw down their palm branches, they throw down their coats, and Jesus comes into the temple with all of that, uh, sorry, into Jerusalem with all of that celebration, and we're told that this happened to fulfill the passage in Zechariah 9.9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the reason I say that there really is no better place to be uh, as we come to Palm Sunday than in the Sermon on the Mount is because really what we, have, what we have encountered even in the last few weeks is a righteous king who fulfills scripture. That's exactly what we spent the last two weeks looking at, this righteous king who fulfills scripture. So as we see Zechariah being quoted there in Matthew, we see the one who is righteous, who brings salvation. We see the one who is, says, behold the king. And so if we are going to really do justice to Palm Sunday, if we're really going to, to celebrate that from the heart in a real way, I think that we're pointed in no better place than to the Sermon on the Mount because that is what it means to celebrate Jesus as king. It's not to just sort of th to, to sing these songs and throw down our palm branches, so to speak, but it is to do what it is the king has said to do, to live the life that the king has said to live, to live out our citizenship in this kingdom, and that's exactly what we're doing, what we're going through here in the Sermon on the Mount. So, I've decided to continue our time in the Sermon on the Mount today, but for Good Friday and Easter, uh, we, will, we will be looking at passages of the uh, scripture from the Gospel of Matthew on the crucifixion and resurrection. So we will be having a Good Friday service at 6.30 this coming Friday, so please come to that if you're able. And then, of course, we will be celebrating the resurrection of our Lord on Easter Sunday as we look at that from the Gospel of Matthew. So what is our main topic for today? It is murder. Not a very pleasant topic. The topic of murder. And what we could say is it's murder according to Jesus. Or another way to put this is murder rightly understood. Murder from Jesus' perspective, murder as it comes from the mouth of God himself, the Son of God, God incarnate, Jesus Christ, telling us how we ought to think about this idea of murder. 
And over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20, and there were three ideas that came out of that passage. The first one is the enduring text. We saw that the Old Testament is to endure, that Jesus did not come to abolish it. But the second truth that we got was that a fulfilling Christ, that that we have an enduring text, but we also have a fulfilling Christ. So while the text itself of the Old Testament and the law of the Old Testament is to endure, it must endure insofar as it is fulfilled in Christ. So an enduring text, an enduring scripture, and a fulfilling Christ. And thirdly, we get the idea of a surpassing righteousness, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. And so we have these three themes, and now in chapter 5, verses 21 to 48, we're not looking at all of that today, but in verses 21 to 48, we see these truths being worked out by means of six examples or illustrations. So we get this passage that we've looked at for the last couple of weeks in, in chapter 5, verses 70 to 20. And it sets the tone then for us to look at a, a, a number of topics that will illustrate Jesus' point, really, in terms of who he is, what the law is in relationship to him, and what righteousness actually looks like in light of those other two truths. And so we've got murder, adultery, divorce, Swearing falsely, retaliation, and loving your neighbor. That's where Jesus is going to spend his time as he continues uh, in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. And so how do these themes I just mentioned, how are they playing out here? Well, first, enduring scripture. Jesus upholds the true meaning of the Old Testament scriptures as it pertains to murder. Jesus is not here saying, and we'll talk about this in a minute, he's not here saying that was the Old Testament uh, version of murder. Here's my version. He's not coming along and giving a separate kind of, kind of teaching that contradicts that teaching. He's upholding the true meaning of the Old Testament scripture. So that is what I mean by that theme of enduring scripture being played out in these subsequent verses. Fulfilling Christ. Jesus shows his authority as the one who fulfills all of it. And so how does each of these sections begin? You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. He, the king, the Christ, God himself, Emmanuel, is the one who speaks authoritatively as the one who fulfills all of it. You've heard that it was said, but I, I, the authoritative one, say to you. So we see the fulfilling Christ being played out in these verses and then surpassing righteousness. The living out of God's law from the heart. That's what we will see all throughout these verses. This is a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. It exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees because they were only concerned with keeping the law in an external way. They were only concerned with doing certain things in a certain way and putting up an external facade, really, of law keeping. And Jesus will say that righteousness is no righteousness at all. That the only righteousness that counts is one that is found in the heart. So today, Matthew 5, 21 to 26 is where we will spend our time. And the title of the sermon is Murder Rightly Understood. So let's go ahead and pray. And uh, then we'll jump into these, to these ideas here. We'll start here with verse 21 and then I'll pray. 
You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray, ask for the Lord's help. Ask that he will attune our minds to his word and that the spirit will do things in each of us. Our Father, God, what a special thing it is to gather together as your people and worship you as as a local church. Father, we are so humbled by the fact that, that we belong to you and that we're here. God, we just, uh, we, we just thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Father, that as we proceed through this service, that the only way that we will be able to worship you in spirit and truth and without distraction is by your mercy. We know, God, that there are many things, uh, even now, noises and sounds, and also many things in our own minds that could distract us from you, from your truth. And so, God, we ask that that will not be the case, that we will we'll be here to work, that we will have a right view of work as it, as it concerns worship, that our minds will be ready and diligent and, and, and looking into the things that are said and asking, how might this apply to my own life? Where is God bringing this to bear on me today in my relationships God, I pray that that will be the question that each of us asks as we go through this service. Father, would you just take uh, the, the murderous uh, thoughts and intentions of our hearts and would you turn those by your grace, turn those to, to love and humility and gentleness and kindness and, and peacemaking. Father, help us to mourn over our sins as Jesus tells us. Help us to be poor in spirit, to beat our chests and cry out for mercy from you, the God who saves sinners like us. So God, we're here this morning just asking for your help. We know that apart from you, we can do nothing. We would want to do nothing apart from you, God. We're not here to just uh, go through motions, God. We want to hear from you. We want to see your face. We want to see your glory in the face of your son. And so God, would you just lift him up from your scripture and would you help each of us to be cut to the heart by it? We pray that we will leave here differently, that you will bring real change in each heart according to your knowledge, according to your sovereign knowledge and purposes in each, every single individual life. God, we trust you for this, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So there are three things to see as we walk through these verses this morning. The first is the meaning of murder, and that's kind of, that's where we're gonna spend most of our time, really, because that's the, that's really the center of this entire passage, and then secondly, we will look at the priority of peace, and then the consequences of continuation. So let's go ahead and go to this first idea, the meaning of murder. I'm gonna read verses 21 to 22 again, and you can see those there 
on the screen. Verses 21 and 22, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. As noted before, Jesus here speaks with authority. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. But one thing that we have to be clear about at the very beginning, and I've already alluded to this once before, is that Jesus' authority is not placed in opposition to the Old Testament. We do not have the authority of Jesus kind of coming up against or bucking the Old Testament authority. Instead, he is pointing them to what they've heard on various topics in Scripture from those who have read and taught in the synagogue, i.e. the scribes and Pharisees, those who have brought the word. We already, we read last week from Matthew chapter 23, the kind of ethic, the kind of interpretive uh, framework that the scribes and Pharisees used. And so if you, if you were with us last week, we went through Matthew 23. It was not a pretty picture of these guys, the way they thought, the way they acted. Well, remember that these would be the sorts of guys who would be teaching the people. These are the guys who would be reading the scriptures in the synagogue and who, who would be communicating to the people what God's word said. And so when Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, he is referring to prevailing interpretation, primarily that which comes from the traditions of those who were living at his time, at the time of Jesus. The traditions that preceded Jesus' time, the rabbinical traditions as they were brought to bear on the Old Testament. How do we know this is the case? Well, the most obvious place where we see that what's in view here is not strictly the Old Testament, but it is the Old Testament as it has been misinterpreted or miscommunicated to the people, the one place where we see this most obviously is in Matthew 5, verse 43. So look there really quickly, if you will. Verse 43 you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. <laughs> well, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what the Old Testament says. The law did not teach in any way, shape, or form to hate your enemy. And so there we have a very clear indication that what Jesus is referring to when he says you have heard that it was said is not the Old Testament strictly speaking, but the Old Testament as it is being misinterpreted and misapplied by the religious leaders of Jesus' time via the traditions going back, the rabbinical traditions. And in our passage as well, regarding murder, although it is more subtle, very much more the case, we see how the traditional teaching surrounding God's law had turned people away from its full force and meaning. So it's not just in a place like that where we get a very obvious reworking and perverting of the text of the Old Testament, but even here. As we come to the topic of murder, we can see, although it's much more subtle, we can see how they've twisted the meaning of the text in a way that, that where the text loses its force. It loses its uh, applicability in the lives of those who would have heard it. On the surface, both statements are biblical. You shall not murder. It's the first statement. The second statement, whoever murders will be liable to judgment. 
On the surface, this is pure Bible. Pure Bible. It looks like these guys are just sort of pulling it together, and there you go. That's the teaching of the Scripture. And on the surface, that is the case. The first part is Exodus 20, 13. Direct quote, you shall not murder. This is the sixth commandment. By the way, this is a time to kind of interject a a parenthetical note, and it's this. The scripture should be understood as thou shalt not murder, not thou shalt not kill. Oh, and I think we all uh, more or less probably understand this, but throughout the Old Testament, we have instances of capital punishment. We have instances of animals being killed. We have instances even of just war, war that is regarded uh, by God as just, I should say. That's the ultimate definition of just war, war even commanded by God against the Canaanites in certain areas, in certain practices as those wars unfold. And so we know that when we come to the Ten Commandments, we're not talking about a, a, a commandment against killing in general. We're talking about murder. And we'll see in a moment a little bit more about what murder is. But that's the first part, you shall not murder. And so far, we're pure Bible. That's a commandment. It's the sixth one. And everyone would have recognized that. The second part, that you are liable to judgment, is also pure Bible. That's, that came right out of the Old Testament. For example, Leviticus 24, 17 says, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Well, there you go. This is nuanced a little bit in Exodus 21, 12 to 14, where uh, the, the definition of murder becomes a little clearer, and there's a little nuance as to how some might die in a case that's not, strictly speaking, murder. And so Exodus 21, 12 to 14 says, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man, and here's, I think, a definition of murder as we read it, as we read it throughout, strictly speaking, the act of murder, a definition like this. If a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. That was God's command. And so in the Old Testament, if a person were to kill another person in this way, not an accidental death. And there was even laws about, you know, if you're using an ax and the ax head comes off, and, you know, why did the ax head come off? Did you know about that? Did you know that was going to happen? Did you, you know, did you take steps to make sure that 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 would not happen, an accident like that would not, was it careless? Was it an accident? And if so, there are certain regulations that go along with that. But what we're talking about here is murder, willful act of taking another person's life by cunning. It's nuanced a little bit further in Numbers 35.30, where it says, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. And so there we have a little bit of sort of the judicial background for how a murder might be tried. It was not just that person is murdered, put the, that person murdered, put them to death, but that there were checks and balances in place so as to make sure that if a person murdered another person, that there were people who could come along and say that happened. There were witnesses, not just a person who maliciously accused someone of doing something so they could get rid of that person by having them put to death. 
So this just gives you a little bit of background to how that commandment was stated in the Old Testament. In the law, specifically. And all of this goes back to Noah before the law was given. Which is important for how we understand the validity of the death penalty, even today. So Genesis 9, 6, before the law was given, God tells Noah this. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. In other words, here's the problem with our society. When a society begins to care little about the image of God, it will be a society that begins to care less about the prosecution of murderers. And even more, where a society cares less about the image of God, it will be a society that moves further and further away from the death penalty. I believe a Christian position is a position that says that the, that the death penalty is good. It is right. It is fitting. It is God's will for human beings. Another passage where you will find this is in Romans 13, where Paul talks about the fact that the magistrate has been given a role by God to be an avenger who executes God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And Paul refers to that as a sword, not as a whip. A sword was meant for one thing, execution. And so we have there not only an Old Testament pre-law statement regarding the validity of the death penalty, we have it in the law itself as it is the moral law which Jesus came to fulfill not to abolish, being worked out in the lives of people, and we have it being affirmed in the New Testament in Romans chapter 13 where we see that the magistrate is called an avenger of God, a servant of God who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So I think it's just important to treat that as we move through this idea of murder. But going back to the main idea that I'm working through at this point, the traditional interpretation. Yes, on the one hand, these scribes and Pharisees and the tradition which they were a part of, on the one hand, both of these statements are true. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, statement one. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Statement two, on the one hand, as I've tried to just demonstrate, both of these statements are true and biblical. But the problem is that this way of putting it weakens the application of the command and waters down the consequence. How? How? Why does Jesus, why does Jesus uh, confront this and say, but I say to you? Well, it does these two things. First, regarding the command, this statement on murder focuses merely on the act itself. I'll get into that a little bit more in a moment, but that's all that this commandment, this statement that would have been taught so as people would have gone to the synagogue and they would have heard the scribes and the Pharisees talking about murder, this would have been the be all and end all of murder. If you were to, to ask about the nature of killing other people and, and how bad that was, this was the teaching. It was stated in this very cut and dry way which focused exclusively on the actual act of taking another person's life. That's the first problem. The command is weakened. The application of it is weakened. Secondly, regarding the consequence, it is merely seen in terms of human judgment. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. All about the act itself only 
and simply has human judgment in view. Not quite. Not quite what the law was about. Not quite what the law was saying. So what does Jesus have to say about murder? What does Jesus have to say about the command? And it's simply this. Murder is defined at the heart level, not merely in the act. What is murder from Jesus' perspective? And that, means to, that is to say, what is murder from God the Father's perspective? What is murder from the Holy Spirit? What is murder from the triune God's perspective? What is murder from the biblical perspective? It is hostility of the heart. That is murder. Putting one to death in your thoughts. How often do we do that? We don't even know that we are doing it. This attitude of the heart expresses itself with the tongue. And that's where Jesus goes next. He goes all the way back. You could say all the way back to the beginning or as deep as you can possibly go. He goes to the heart. He goes to the emotions, the affections, the stirring of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And then as that begins to come out through the mouth. So it goes from the heart to the tongue to the act itself. And so we have here. In verse 22, literally, whoever says raka, raka is uh, a word probably that comes, it it probably has an origin in an Aramaic word, which essentially means empty. And that's where you get this first statement. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, that literally says, whoever says raka, and raka means empty. It's like saying brainless, you brainless one, you numbskull, you worthless person, you idiot, you blockhead, you stupid person. That's, the, that's what Jesus is getting at here, that kind of language which we all tell our kids. You know, I, I can remember uh, Jennifer and I, were, we were watching, um, one, of the, one of the things I liked to watch when I was a kid were, were the Ninja Turtles, the 1987 version of the Ninja Turtles. And so I've been kind of taking Jake back to, uh, to the Ninja Turtles, you know, that I grew up with. It's some of the new stuff. Ah. So t- taking him back to the 1980s version of the Ninja Turtles. And one of the things I don't quite like about it, of course, you know, you just kind of labor with it a little bit, is that, uh, of course, Shredder, for any of you who know anything about the Ninja Turtles, some of you are just going right over your head, Shredder has Bebop and Rocksteady. These are his two kind of soldiers, okay? These are the guys who are carrying out his wishes, And he's always calling them, you idiots. He's always speaking at them in this way. And that's the kind of thing we don't really want our kids to hear. We don't want them to emulate that kind of of verbiage, that kind of activity. And it all goes back, ultimately, that kind of language really goes back to this. That to speak in that way, to use our tongues in that way against other people, flowing out of a heart of anger, is itself murder from our Lord's perspective. This is... This is incredible. Whoever says fool, he goes on to say, and this is probably just the same idea, but it may have more of a moral connotation to it. The first idea, empty, just seems to have only an intellectual connotation. You, you empty-headed person, whereas this one seems to have more of a moral connotation. You, you worthless, wretched soul kind of idea. Either way, we have here hostile, contemptuous, malicious, hateful speech from the tongue which comes up out of a heart. Jesus describes all of this further in Matthew 15. Listen closely to these words. But what comes out of the mouth 
proceeds from the heart. You see the mouth and the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Out of the heart comes murder. Not from the hand that wields the weapon, but from the heart. That is where murder comes from. So we got a quick question we have to answer. What about Jesus? Jesus calls the Pharisees fools at one point. We got to deal with that. And Jesus is angry. He's said to be angry a number of times in the Gospels. One time in particular, he's angry at the fact that when he's healing a man, that the, the, the religious leaders are mad at Jesus because he healed a man on the Sabbath. He broke the Sabbath, the law of God, so the Pharisees say, these religious leaders say, he broke the law by actually working, that is, healing a man on the Sabbath. Incredible. Incredible backwardness. And Jesus, the Bible says, was angry with them. He was also angry with them when he cleansed the temple. After the triumphal entry, which we would read on Palm, which would be associated with Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, which I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, Jesus goes in, he cleanses the temple. He goes into the temple, there are all these money changers there. You, I'm sure you've read this story, and they're selling and buying, and they've made the temple just a place of, of, of human uh, prosperity, a place where, where it's just about making money. It's just about having earthly things. There's a kind of a, a disregard for the worship of God there, a play, being a place of prayer and a place of exalting God. People are being taken advantage of. And Jesus goes in there with a whip and he starts smacking people around with a whip. Well, he starts smacking at least the tables and he starts turning over tables. I don't know exactly if he hit anyone with a whip, probably not, but he's at least going in there with a whip, cracking it, flipping over the tables. Angry, zeal, he's described as having. Zeal for his father's house. So what do we do with this? Jesus gets angry in these ways. Matthew 23, 17, you blind fools, he says to the Pharisees. We read that last week. And the answer to that would be twofold. One, what we have with Jesus are two things kind of going at the same time. One, we have a judicial aspect to Jesus. Remember who Jesus is. He is God incarnate. He is God himself who has come in a physical form, enfleshed, and he is rendering judgment on these evil scribes and Pharisees. He is rendering true judgment on them. So Jesus is the judge who will judge all mankind. He'll judge the world. Everyone will stand before him. It is by him that God has appointed judgment. All judgment God has entrusted to the Son. And so here we see Jesus in that judicial office, that status, that role, acting as the judge, God himself, rendering true judgment. Those men were fools, truly. That's part of it. I think another part of it is the fact that Jesus has righteous indignation, not against an offense that has come, come to him, but against that which is evil in the world, injustice and immorality in the world. It's not about vindicating himself. How do we know that? How do we know that Jesus' anger is not this sort of self-promoting, uh, self-vindicating thing? How do we know it's not that? The answer is, from the fact that Jesus, we are told, did not revile when he was reviled. 
He did not repay evil for evil when he was nailed to the cross, when he was mocked, spit upon, beaten, and all of those things. He did not do that. Instead, what do we read? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's how Jesus acted when he was personally insulted, when he was personally offended. But then we see Jesus when it is about God's vindication, when it is about evil toward a man who is sick and who needs to be healed and these evil men are looking at him and saying he is worthless rubbish, does not deserve to be healed. By the way, it's the Sabbath. You should be doing that. Leave the man alone. Let him suffer. That is evil and foolish and Jesus called it precisely what it is. Judicial and righteous indignation as we oftentimes call it. So that is what Jesus has to say about the command. You shall not murder. It's not just about the act itself. It is about the heart and it is about the tongue as it proceeds from the heart. Far before you ever even get to the act of murder itself. That's what Jesus has to say about the command. All of that, I should say, should have been taught by the scribes and Pharisees. All of that but it wasn't, because all of that is present in the law of God, read rightly, and the Christ who came to fulfill it explicated it perfectly and fully and let its application come and bear down deep onto the heart. So he says that about the command, but what does Jesus have to say about the consequence? This is also very, very important. Because when you put these two ideas together, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, the consequence is stripped of its force. It's stripped of its reality. And so what does he say? This heart-level murder will be punished not just temporally by a human court, as the tradition implied. It's more than that. It will be punished forever in hell. Jesus says in verse 22, literally the hell of fire or even more literally the Gehenna of fire. Gehenna is, uh, refers to the valley of the sons of Hinnom. It is a ravine or a valley south of Jerusalem. This is an awful place historically for Israel because in the period of the monarchs, in the period of the kings, King Ahaz in particular, but not just King Ahaz, the Israelites, when they would go after false gods, they would perform in this particular place child sacrifice. They would pass their children through the fire. Can you believe that? In fact, that was one of the reasons. Listen to how, listen to how dark this is. That was one of the reasons that God had commanded his people to destroy the Canaanites in toto, totally, is because they had given themselves over, just as in the period of the flood, they had given themselves over as an entire people, like Sodom and Gomorrah, as an entire people to the wickedness of child sacrifice. In the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, it was homosexuality. But in the case of Canaan, it was this child sacrifice. And not only did the Israelites not go into the land and destroy the people as an act of divine judgment, as he had commanded them to do, not only did they fail to do that, but they also began to adopt the practices of those people themselves. The people of God. And they began to 
take their children and burn them to these false gods. Molech in particular. Well, after this period, this ravine, this valley, became kind of like a big garbage dump. It became a place where all of this trash was piled up and it was just perpetually burned. And so it was a place, as you would look upon it, it was a place of horror, really. It was a place of kind of nastiness. It was dark. No one would look at that place and say, oh, lovely. No one would do that. It was a terribly uh, sorrowful place, a dark place. Whether you were reflecting on the history of wickedness practiced in that place in the Old Testament monarch period, or if you were just simply looking at the trash burning and stinking there in that place. Jesus says that is a picture of a real, literal, eternal hell to which every murderer will go. That is what Jesus is saying. Hell is described elsewhere by Jesus as a place of eternal torment in fire. Literally. Literally. Matthew 13, 42 and 50, Jesus says this about hell. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mark 9, 43, it's called the unquenchable fire. We all know what that word unquenchable means. The fire doesn't stop blazing. It is never put out. Mark 9, 48, by the way, these are all the words of Jesus. Once again, as I said last week, those who think Jesus has this idea of Jesus as a nice cuddly guy who, you know, is the Old Testament law and there's God of the Old Testament and then there's Jesus over here and it's just radically different. It's, 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 it's ridiculous. These are all the statements of Jesus. Unquenchable fire, Mark 9, 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is perpetual, eternal, unceasing torment in hell. Matthew 25, 46 calls it eternal punishment and it is the opposite of eternal life. And that is why 1 John 3, 15 says, everyone who hates his brother, hear this, hear this language, because it, it, it applies directly to what we're looking at today. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, put simply. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So what does he have? Eternal death, eternal damnation, eternal condemnation. And that is the reason why Paul will say at the beginning of Romans 12, there is no, beginning of Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This place awaits every sinner, every sinner. What we are gonna celebrate on Good Friday is the fact that Christ came and bore that on our, in our place. That's what we're gonna celebrate on Good Friday in particular is that as Christ is hanging on the cross, he didn't just get beat up really bad by the Romans and the Jews and oh, look, it's so sad, you know, Jesus got hurt really bad. It's not that, it's much deeper than that. What he is enduring on the cross is he is bearing hell, this is why the ancient creeds talk about Christ descending into hell and how one interprets that and whether or not that should be in the creed is up for debate. But the, the point that Calvin makes in particular is that as Jesus hangs on the cross and bears the wrath of God, that in and of itself is his descension into hell. He endured that for us so that all who run to him, all who look upon him are forgiven of every sin and the condemnation of hell. The unquenchable fire that awaits every sinner is removed. That's the gospel. 
Those who do not look to this Christ, those who do not come to God by him, will end here forever. So, what are some major implications of all of this for us? I think first, the the truth of Romans 3.23 is brought out very clearly here. What does Romans 3.23 say? Most of us learn that as children. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the reason that this verse, I think, is an implication of what we're seeing, or, or this verse states the truth of what we're seeing, is that the truth is every person in this room is a murderer. I am a murderer. You are a murderer. Because every person in this room has had hostile, malicious, ungodly, evil, vindictive, contemptuous thoughts and said words about other people. And in God's sight, we are all not only murderers, but we are all deserving of this hell, this rebelliousness, this sin against this eternal holy God. What Jesus is saying clearly to us, whether we accept it or not, is that all of us are guilty of murder and will be judged accordingly. See, we can't see the depth of the evil involved in hating a person, but God can. And God will vindicate all murder. And I think this tells us that we need a savior. It tells us that we need a savior in two ways. Number one, if if murder, something so evil as murder, is at the very base, it's at the heart level, then it tells us that we don't only need forgiveness of that so that we cannot be condemned and go to be with God, but it also tells us that we need new hearts. Because if we have hearts that at the core are always creating these murderous thoughts, I mean, this is the life of a person who's outside of Christ. All this anger, all of this rage, we, we don't see it. Let me give you a, a little bit of an example. My father-in-law, he, uh, he worked for, he works for Verizon, and I don't think he would mind me sharing this, but he works for Verizon, and he was saying last summer, I was talking with him at the beach, and he was saying that uh, when there was a strike, he had to go and take 411 calls. And he's taking these 411 calls, and he said, it is amazing what you hear on the phone from people. He said that, that the, the, the amount of profanity, the amount of anger, the amount of hatred that he heard from people on the phone, simply because it took another minute, simply because it took another minute to get to where they were trying to go, this is the truth. We walk around people all of the time, and people look really nice, but God sees everything Nothing escapes his sight. He sees every one of those words and every one of those thoughts and every one of those evil affections of the heart and he will judge every man for every sin. That is what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount and in these verses. So we need a new heart. We need a new heart, people. We need a brand new heart. And Christ, he'll give you that. If you don't have that, he will give you that new heart and he will wash away your sins through the blood of his precious son. What a preparation for Easter this is, I think. Another thing, another implication that we need to see is that I think we're all serious about murder. I mean, how angry do you get when you see murder on TV when you hear about it? I mean, how, how enraged do we get even at righteous vindication at murder when we hear of it happening. But I want to ask you a question. How serious are you about your own anger? How serious are you about that? 
Because that's the implication. That's the application of seeing the heinousness of murder. The application of that is to check our own anger in our own hearts. Anger in your family. Anger here in our church. Jesus says to your brother, I think this is extended to all people as we see in verses 25 to 26 because we're talking about someone who's taking them to court. I don't think we're talking here about just disciples, but even here, brothers and sisters in Christ, how much anger exists in the church? I mean, how many churches just rupture and split and there's all kinds of infighting and all of that because of this, because of this anger in the hearts of men and women, in the family, in the church, So who are you murdering today? Who have you murdered? What do you need to confess to the Lord today? As you examine yourself and prepare for the Lord's Supper, this is is Jesus' perspective on our hearts and our lives. And I want to say this finally. Hell is real. Hell is real. And I'm not talking about Dante's Inferno. You know, some, some of the crazy imaginative things he comes up with there in terms of what happens in hell. You know, we really don't know, but what we do know is hell is real. And more people are going there than you think. Far more people. We're gonna come at the end of the Sermon on the Mount to the fact that the the way to hell is very, very, very broad. The way to eternal life is a narrow way. So I think the question that needs to be asked is are you going to be there? Are you going to be there I pray not I pray that you will run to the sun as Psalm 2 says that you will kiss the sun and be forgiven of all your sins so as we finish up this morning Jesus gives us two implications or illustrations for how this heart level righteousness is to play out I told you that we would spend more time on the first idea because really it's the most significant part of this passage, but we now move to the second, which is the priority of peace. So look at verses 23 to 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The interesting thing that we find here And in the next illustration of verses 25 to 26 is that Jesus extends the meaning. Listen to this. This is incredible what Jesus is doing. He extends the meaning of you shall not murder even further. He's already extended it to the depth of the heart. He's extended the consequence to the eternity of hell. And now he's extending it even further to capture its force. How is he doing that? Now he says that murdering is not simply about what you don't do. It is about taking positive steps so as to reconcile with people. That that if if you were to really understand what the commandment means, the application of it, the intention of it, not to murder, you would see that not only does it not just have to do with the act of not taking a person's life, but it actually implies that we take every step we can to be at peace with everyone. That's what Jesus is saying about this commandment. That we are to live out, as Romans 8, 4 says, we we live out the righteous requirement of the law. We are to live this out as believers. So we have, there's a positive aspect to it. Not just a negative, don't murder, don't be angry, don't insult, don't call people fools. But there's a positive aspect to it, which is to go out and reconcile. And the main idea here 
is that how we treat others is a top priority from God's perspective. Peace with our fellow human beings is bigger and more significant than our religious observances as we go through them. God wants our worship to be pure. He wants our worship to be from a clean conscience. God does not hear, the Bible says frequently, the prayers of those who hold up iniquity in their heart. Have you ever considered that? God shuts his ear to prayers made by those who harbor sin in their hearts knowing that it's unconfessed and unrepented sin and hold it up in and say, I'm just gonna continue to do this. God shuts his ear to those prayers, we're told. Peter, 1 Peter 3, talks to husbands and says, husbands, treat your wives in this way, lest your prayers be hindered. The way you treat your spouse could hinder your devotional life? Of course, of course. And that is precisely what we find here. Now, this is pretty radical because you would have a person going to the temple. This is what's in view here. A person going to the temple to offer a gift to the Lord, and they're offering up that gift right outside of the court of the priests, and he remembers. Now, he's from Galilee. Keep this in mind. Jesus is preaching in Galilee. This guy goes all the way to Jerusalem. He's about to offer his gift. He's already gone through all the trouble of getting his sacrifice, and he gets up to the court of the priest. He's already gone through some other courts. He gets to the court of the priest. He's about to offer his gift to the priest, and he remembers Some guy back in Galilee, 80 miles away, whom he's offended. Put that sacrifice down, turn around, walk out of the courts, leave Jerusalem, go back to Galilee, then come back and offer your gift. That's what Jesus is saying to do. This is radical. This is incredible. That's how important horizontal reconciliation is to divine worship, to the worship of God. God. So what are some scenarios for us? One, you're giving online. You're about to click the submit button and God reminds you of someone that you have something against. Shut your computer and go. Now. Be reconciled. You're attending service. You're about to take the Lord's Supper. I won't be surprised if people leave this morning before you take the Lord's Supper. It's okay to do that. I'm not saying everyone should, but I'm saying it's okay to do that. You're about to take the Lord's Supper and you remember that there is someone who has something, you've, you've sinned against someone, you've offended someone, go now. Don't wait, don't even wait till after the service. Isn't that incredible? Don't even wait till you go home. You know, when we leave here today, it's not even that. It's go now. You're going through your morning devotions, personal time with God, praying, reading the scriptures, and God reminds you, shut your Bible, put it to the side, and go. Be reconciled quickly. You're about to have family worship. And you know that your spouse has something against you. Even your children have something. Go, then, handle that first. We can't control how we will be received, but we can make every effort to be reconciled to those whom we have offended. I want you to see this. Not murdering somebody is about far more than not taking someone's life. That's the big idea of this entire sermon. It's about far more than just not going out here and doing some heinous crime that you only read about in the newspapers or that you only see on the news. It has so much more attached to it that's applicable to every single one of us who in fact have murdered according to Jesus' definition. 
After illustrating his point in a worship context, Jesus then goes on to consider a day-to-day legal context. He gives another illustration. You can go ahead, Michael, go to that next one. The consequences of continuation. Look at verses 25 to 26 as we close this morning. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The image is one is of one who is being brought to court due to debts that remain unpaid. The person is essentially told to rush to reconcile, to arrive at a settlement, to reach a peaceful agreement before it is too late. And I think Jesus really here with these verses has two things. It's kind of a a twofold way of understanding what's going on here. First, we need to know, just on a basic human level, that there are temporal consequences for letting hostility persist in our everyday lives. These things don't just blow over. That's one of the biggest points. And this is applicable to every single person in this room because we all have people that we have had tension with. And maybe even today, God is speaking to you very clearly. You need to, you need to get right with that person. You need to reach out to that person now. Don't wait. Do it now. Because I think what Jesus is saying here is that it is unwise and destructive to let murder, rightly understood, you must get that, to let murder, rightly understood, run rampant in the world. And this all goes back to being one who mourns over sin. Where you see sin, you hate it. It all goes back to being one who is a peacemaker, that we want to make peace. The truth is that the reason our world is so broken is because there's murder everywhere. And so the question really is, insofar as you are able now, how can you remove that from your life, from the lives of other people? We see in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. I want you to see this. When there is not an effort to reach out to someone whom you've sinned against, you're either harboring anger in your own heart so you won't be willing to do it, you're just gonna say, I'm not gonna do that, or you're letting anger harbor in that person's heart. What you're doing is you're creating a space for the devil. And the devil gains a foothold in your life, in that person's life, in our world, and he does what he does. He steals, he kills, and he destroys. And that happens through anger. One of the greatest negatives of all these movies on demons and Satan is that it really gives us the sense that the way that the devil works is through sort of spinning heads and people climbing walls and other kinds of craziness that the world uh, comes up with to sort of illustrate what demonic activity looks like. This is demonic activity. I want you to see that. When space through anger and hostility is left open, the devil says, boom, he rushes right through just like a fullback, right through the hole, and he wreaks havoc on that person's life. That's the first thing I think Jesus is saying here. But secondly, and even more importantly, I think Jesus is giving us a picture of eternal consequences. And what he's saying is that the kind of person who lives this kind of life of hostility towards others and provoking hostility in others is the kind of person who can expect the end that we find here, eternally speaking. 
In other words, this is temporally speaking the kind of consequence that we should expect when we let murder just run rampant in our lives. But this is also an analogy or a picture or an illustration of the kind of eternal consequence that every person who lives at enmity with his neighbor will face from God. The idea of getting out till he's paid the last penny really has to do with this. A person who is put in jail is not able to work to pay off his debt. So he's not gonna get out. That's the point of the passage. He's stuck there. And so too is every person who dies in his or her sins stuck there forever. There will be no getting out. It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. There is no second chance. This is it. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for your word. We thank you for the glory of your law and the glory of your perfect son who fulfilled every bit of it. And we're thankful for your Holy Spirit who takes your law and writes it upon our hearts that we might live unto you, that we might present our members as instruments for righteousness, that we might present ourselves to you as a living sacrifice, holy and blameless before you at your son's coming. God, we are grateful for the new hearts which you have given us. Help us to leave here today and not be murderers. We are not of the, we are not of the one who is the murderer from the beginning. We are of you, God. We have been set free from bondage to him so that we could live to you. Help us do that. Help us prepare our hearts for Good Friday and for Easter. Help us to do that by thinking deeply, as Jesus tells us to do here, about our own sin and to confess it and repent of it and to turn to you for the grace which you give through the gospel of your son. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.